Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, November 5th, and this is the weekly market update. A disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. This is for informational purposes only. I am not a financial advisor. I cannot give you individual investment advice. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. All right, let's get started. So I wanted to point this out. Uh, you know, one of the main themes that we're operating from here at Actionable Intelligence is the fact that we're in an energy crisis, uh, a molecule crisis, if you will. There's just simply not enough energy. And we've made it worse by the ill-advised charge into the unknown of an energy transition while also consistently demonizing the extractive industries. And so if you know anything about energy, if you've studied energy transitions, if you understand the math behind what's required vis-a-vis -vis, or what's required for energy inputs into complex societies, you should have already known that we weren't going to be able to get off fossil fuels in any type of short-term time frame. But as we know, and as, and as what is unfortunate is that our energy policies are severely, our energy policy, our energy um, planning is completely captured by politics and interest groups, and I'll, we've talked about this before. And so this is not going to get resolved, in my view, until the political climate changes uh, to a more, uh, into a political situation where the people that are making policy uh, actually understand, you know, what's required, they get the math, they understand that even if they want to transition, it's going to take decades and that it needs to be planned out. Otherwise, you're going to, if you try to force feed this down everybody's throat, that you have all of this, um, you're going to have misallocation of resources, you're going to have all these um, discombobulations, you're going to have all of this uh, turmoil that we're seeing in markets. And as I've said before, as we've said for a couple of years once we've been talking about this energy uh, situation that we would have shortages, that as long as people are able to express themselves democratically, at least in the West, they're not going to put up with it. And you're seeing that. Um, we'll see what happens next Tuesday here in the U.S. But here's an example of what I'm talking about. And people see these things. And I don't put this up to bag on Joe Biden. He's not my cup of tea. I think he's a, a nitwit. I think it's actually sad from a moral perspective and as a human perspective that he's put out there uh, as this uh, husk of his former self, as you will. And they just, you know, he's used as this uh, mouthpiece or front man just to say things. I don't even think he has a clue what he's saying half the time, but that's neither here nor there. It's actually sad that people are so craving of power and greed for power and money that they would, you know, that they would do this to their own family member. But this is the way of the world. This is, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. So anyways, our first uh, tweet here on the left was, was when Mr. Biden was on the campaign trail in 2020. And you, you know how I like to 
bring up the video. I think I showed it a couple weeks ago or put a link to it where he was on the campaign trail and he walked across the stage to that 14 year old girl and told her to look into his eyes, look into my eyes, kiddo. We're going to get rid of fossil fuels. I promise you. Well, sometimes you should listen to politicians. I mean, they lie quite a bit, but sometimes they tell the truth, right? So anyways, here's what he said on the campaign trail. We have to treat climate change like the existential threat it is. As president, I will end subsidies for fossil fuel corporations, ban new drilling on federal lands and waters, hold oil executives accountable, rally the world to raise the commitments of the Paris Agreement. So he's been, he's been fairly consistent in trying to do this. Um, and you can see what ends up happening. Um, it, people say, well, John, he hasn't really st stopped anything. Yes, but you've changed the sentiment and tenor, right? Who in the oil industry in the US, we've seen what the zeitgeist is now. It's not drill, baby, drill. It's husband cash, return capital to shareholders. And of course, that's now being demonized. Uh, they're putting a, I believe it's 2% tax on buybacks in Canada. We're talking about uh, Mr. Biden's been out demonizing the uh, oil and gas industry about returning capital to shareholders now. We're talking about windfall profit taxes. They've been instituted in the UK. Uh, so, and then Rishi Sunak now is talking about raising them. So this is what you see, right? Uh, just flailing around because you have no thought out policy. You're just trying to react to the body politic, to the mob, to calm them down so that you can maintain power and still do what you want to do. You know, Rishi Sunak, the first thing he did when he got into power was reverse what Liz Truss was doing with the view, with the at least opening up the discussion around recommencing fracking onshore in the UK where they have tremendous gas reserves. So, I mean, these people never give up their agenda. They, they try to nuance things. They try to BS everybody and they try to shift the blame and responsibility to someone else uh, and then still maintain their agenda. So anyways, to the right here, this is when now then candidate Biden is now president Biden. And here's what he said uh, this week. Uh, actually, on November 1st, the oil industry has a choice. Either they invest in America by lowering prices for consumers at the pump and increasing production and refining capacity or pay a higher tax on your excessive profits and face other restrictions. Who, who's going to how can you even if they wanted to build the refineries, which why would they in this context when you're being demonized on the left, when they've constantly came after them, when you have all of this regulation all of this, uh, you know, demonization of this industry that, by the way, allows you to have the life you have, by the way, uh, who's going to do that? Okay. Uh, no one, you know, if he wanted to do that, why doesn't he say, okay, in Gary, Indiana or South Texas or Louisiana, we're going to create an economic uh, energy zone. I'm just thinking this policy up as I'm talking. And uh, if you build a refinery there of a certain size, that's able to refine certain crudes into diesel and these products we need, we'll give you 10 year, uh, we'll, lower the, we'll lower the regulatory burden, we'll work with the state, uh, and we will try to, we will fast track this, and we will give you uh, 10, 20 year tax abatement. You will not pay any taxes. That's what they do for renewable energy in a lot of places. They give them tax abatements. 
or give them a reduced tax base, a re reduced tax uh, burden. And so they would have extraordinary profits to try to motivate them. Okay. But what would that they're not going to do that. They're just going to say stuff like this because you have the election coming up next Tuesday and nothing's going to happen after the election. They'll stop talking about this. The SPR releases will end and then we'll start to see oil seek its, you know, this, this undersupply that's dogging out the world. And so they can continue talking like this, but until you change, you can't, you can't talk out of both sides of your mouth. People listen, you know, whether or not this guy, you, you agree with it or not, people listen to the, what the president of the United States says. Okay. They, and even if you wanted to do that plan I was talking about, what would end up happening is you would have NGOs and various uh, environmental organizations that are backed by big money billionaires and they would come in and they would file suit somewhere in some district court somewhere that's uh, amenable to environmentalists and they would put a they would put an injunction on it you can't do anything here in the u.s so this is what's happening Ref, you know as you've shut down five percent of the refining capacity in the united states during the pandemic which made economic sense at the time people don't run things at a loss or you can't stay in business. This is not hard to understand. So that when you came out of the, out of the pandemic and demand returned to its no, as close to normal as it can or has, the supply is deficient. So prices go up. And now that you've shut down that refining capacity, why would you open it when you see things when you have the administration and the media and you know the 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 masters of the universe larry fink and everybody else telling you that you know they're not going to finance fossil fuels so you just sit there and say okay well i'll just clip coupons and return capital to shareholders i'm getting paid there's no incentive for me to go and sit in front of congress and explain this or get lambasted just get in my foxhole and collect the money and pay it out to shareholders not a problem and so this isn't going to change until the zeitgeist changes, until enough pain is felt. Uh, I've talked about this many times over the years, that the way that you're going to, and it may not, it may not happen in every country in the West. I mean, this is not happening in the emerging markets or the global South or the global East. They, they don't talk like this. I mean, it, they have energy policies. They understand that uh, you know, as the uh, one of my favorite new guys is the energy minister from India, when he they try to bring him on these shows and, and give him the what for about buying Russian crude. And he's like, listen, I have 1.3 billion consumers that I have to look out for. Uh, we're going to buy energy from whoever we can get it from at a reasonable price to facilitate uh, that consumer demand. End of story. That's reality. And so, uh, We'll see what happens on Tuesday. I'm, I suggest to you that uh, uh, things probably won't go well for this administration and the DNC. Uh, and then, you know, we have to wait another two years. We're going to have two more years of basically nothing fixing the problem. And then you're going to have uh, more than likely, I mean, if you look at real clear politics forecast, and I'm just, I'm not giving the validity of it. I'm not going to get into those arguments, but that's, you know, a pretty good standard. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that they're overly liberal or overly conservative, but they're, uh, they try to aggregate everything. And right now they're forecasting a Senate with 54 Republicans and 46 Democrats. Uh, they're forecasting anywhere from, I think, 15 House pickups to 48 House pickups and several governor races that are going to go. I mean, it's going to be, a, I think, a lot of surprises on election day 
that weren't forecasted that I think the anger in the country is pretty high. And so, you know, doing things like windfall profit, it's going to be more difficult. So can they do something in the, in the, in the uh, lame ducks? I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to get in. I'm not a Washington DC analyst. I'm just a, you know, looking at it from a high level, but this is not how you get more oil production. This is not how you get more product. You sit down and you say, okay, we want to transition to whatever, okay, this clean energy. We want to meet these goals over the next few decades. We bring in all stakeholders and all views, okay? And then we come up with a national energy policy that encompasses that, all the inputs and the reality and the math. And you have that debate in public. That's what I would do. But that's, the energy industry is so valuable. It's in the trillions of dollars, all encompassing everything. That it attracts the bloodsuckers. It attracts the lobbyists. It attracts the politicians because they can cream off, okay? They can cream off uh, money. And that's what it's about. Contributions, influence, because there's so much money involved. And so you're not going to get a rational energy policy. This is what you end up getting. So I thought it was important to at least talk about this. Uh, I know a lot of people like to bag on President Biden. He's an easy target, I know. But uh, this isn't going to solve the problem. That's, that's the point I'm making. It's just going to get worse. So here's Javier Bloss. He wrote an opinion piece in Bloomberg. Uh, I, I don't have a link to it because it's behind a paywall. You can look it up if you want. But I, I think just this clip here is sufficient to make the point. Um, basically in his comments is like, let's not kid ourselves. Oil companies are doing what we told them to do. Spend less on fossil fuel production. From green philanthropists to big Wall Street investors, the message has been nearly unanimous. That's exactly right. I think there was a big article, I think the front page of Barron's this week or last week, I saw a tweet about it, was talking about the oil industry, but somebody that was discussing the article, it was on the cover, and it was saying, you know, how you know, you can't really use it as a contrary indicator because the article wasn't about how great the oil industry is and how much money it's making. It's talking about how all their green initiatives. Um, that's not a core competency for oil and gas extractors, but they have no choice, right? They have to do what they have to do to survive in the current political climate. And so they do these little greenwashing exercises. Like when I was building wind farms, we one of the clients was Enbridge, which is a big Canadian pipeline company. They don't do this as a core business. They do it so they can say, point at and say, oh, look at our wind farms that we built. Look what we've done. And then what they end up doing is selling these things off at some point. I think Suncor recently just divested their wind assets because this is not a core competency. And these things are low return based on relative to the rest of their business. So um, this is what, the, you know, if you actually waterboarded the executives and the board members of these big oil companies. They don't want anything to do with it. That's not what they do. Uh, so, but you know, this is what you have to do to survive in the current climate. And uh, so that's how it is. And so this is what they're doing. They're doing what they were told to do. And, uh, you know, and they're being demonized for it. It's, it's a catch 22 can't win situation, but this is the opportunity, right? This is the opportunity for us, as I've talked about before, because, you know, it's the, the, investment world is going to possibly contract because of all these, you know, like in Europe, there's a company, 
uh, Vermilion Energy. They have a big offshore gas field in Ireland. They're all over. They have a lot of onshore stuff in Europe that they could be doing, especially in France. There's still a lot of in-place oil and gas, and which they can't exploit. But I think, you know, they were really affected by the windfall profit tax that just came out in the UK, right? I think somebody analyzed it and they're before the windfall profit tax that went into effect, their free cash flow yield at current prices was about 60%. And that's dropped in half now. So basically, you know, I don't blame the politicians. They're just doing, I don't blame a, you know, uh, you know, I don't blame a, uh, an instinctual animal doing what it does, attacking or killing, you know, I don't blame a fox for killing chickens. This is what it does. And I don't blame politicians for trying to play to the mob or try to suck up to uh, different constituencies or benefactors for political contributions. That's what they do. So I wanted to show this because this is very important. Um, another good guy to follow on Twitter, Charlie Bilio, um, you know, back in August 31st, 2020, you know, I've been banging the drum on energy on these videos. If you've been following me for year, for several years, well before it was obvious what was going to happen, by the way, but I think this was interesting to point out because it's illustrative of what I've been talking about. Um, you know, during the, this is back when tech was the, the, the rager, you know, during, during the pandemic tech, all this work at home, we were, you know, this, this articles were written, pundits came out talking about the pandemic is such an opportunity to transform society and blah, blah, blah. And all the stocks went off Peloton, people are exercising at home, you know, uh, Zoom, all these things, you know, they, and all these stocks went crazy, right? And so, uh, the, you know, what happens a lot in the indexes is they have a tendency for recency bias too. So they remove, and at the time, energy sucked, right? Nobody wanted to invest in energy. It was horrible. We had negative $47 a barrel spike down. You remember all this. Uh, those are indications of bottoms, folks, not, you know, you sell out and buy into this because it's never, there's, it's, it's never different this time regardless of what people say, and it wasn't different then. And so what happened is this basically shows you the chart. They took ExxonMobil out of the Dow and put Salesforce into the Dow. And this is the performance since then. <laughs> As you can see, Salesforce is down 43% and Exxon is up 218% because of what we've explained before, which I'm not going to keep reiterating to bore everybody and trying to, you know, I mean, how many times can we talk about the same thing over and over? But this is illustrative of what happens. You know, this is what happens. This is why I talk about like when uh, uh, these uh, fund managers, or these ETF managing companies, they'll, a, a sector will become popular. So they'll create an ETF. Why? Because they're trying to capitalize. They're not trying to make you money. They're trying to capitalize on getting assets under management so they can cream off fees. And so um, that would be an indication to me that when they do that, that that's near the top of a market. Uh, conversely, they will get rid of these ETFs, cancel them out as the assets under management. Uh, there's no longer a fertilizer. They got rid of the fertilizer uh, ETF. I don't know all the dates. This is like over the last couple of few years, they got rid of the coal ETF. They got rid of the shipping ETF. What are the best, what are some of the best performing sectors over the last couple of years? 
okay? Certain sectors of shipping, coal, fertilizers. So these are, these are if you understand how things really work, you can use some of these things as clues, right? Um, and that's what I do. That's, you know, it doesn't, it's just being clever. It, does, it doesn't take, you know, tremendous amounts of brain power. Uh, you just, it's pattern recognition. It's basically all it is in mean reversion. Uh, I, I, people ask me like, what's my key to success in the markets? Well, that's basically it. Pattern recognition and mean reversion. I mean, it's, and being able to have the constitution that when a blown up sector is down 90% and I can see a thesis or catalyst and make a logical case for it that I can sit there for two or three years until it, you know, catches fire and the rest of the market realizes what I already know. Um, that's it. But this is an excellent illustration. And I just wanted to show you this because you're going to see more of this, you know, currently I've said this in the last couple of weeks, I think on the videos and podcast, my expectation is that this outperformance by energy will continue, you know, back in the late seventies, early eighties, um, my dad used to get all these, it was called daily charts it would come every week. It was just like this, it wasn't a magazine, but it was like all these charts, right. Of, um, uh, different companies and you would get the main one in the start of the year. And then you would get updates like every month or every other week or something like that. And they would highlight like the outperforming sectors. I just love going through that. Cause I just remember seeing like all of these, this was during the time of uh, when energy became like 20 or 25% of the S and P. And you just had all of this tremendous outperformance for many years of the energy sector. And then of course it tops out um, all this capital comes in and then you have a uh, collapse in prices because of the, everybody's trying to, you know, capture the outsized returns. We've, we've talked about this before, but uh, this is what we, you would see, you know, there's charts like this for these oil companies. You know, I remember one of my favorite ones I followed and I was just shocked like over two or three year period. This is like when I was a teenager, like 12 or 13. And it was like, dome petroleum this thing just would just keep going from the lower left to the upper right like exxon mobile is now i'm not advocating you go out and buy exxon mobile i'm just showing you this but you know currently energy is i think like it bottomed at three percent of the s p i think it's up to like five percent now can it go back to 20 or 25 why not why couldn't it uh, especially in the environment we're in but i think that the outperformance can at least go back to 10 percent uh, which is would, would double the uh, sector uh, representation S and P probably go further right so um, we 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 have you know a three to five year possibly ten year run here ahead of us so there will be volatility there will be pullbacks um, but uh, you know the world's short of energy and it needs more energy and we're we've been standing on the brake while pushing the accelerator to the floor. And at some point, I think the foot's gonna come off the brake and things are gonna break free. Um, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but you know I've been a big advocate for oil field services, both offshore and onshore. Uh, they really haven't moved. I mean, some of the stocks have, but most of them still haven't. And if it's been pretty consistent listening to the conference calls uh, that, you know, not every company outperformed, but I think it's pretty consistent. Some of them did perform tremendously. Um, 
I mean, I talked about Schlumberger a couple weeks ago. I mean, that's the 800 pound gorilla, but all of them have been pretty consistent about saying we're in a new upcycle. They've been giving, you know, positive forward guidance. And a lot of the companies, and I think it's starting, people are starting to wake up to it. Uh, people were sleeping on oil field services and uh, especially offshore. And that's now, um, I think, changing. So capital will start coming in there. Uh, your window of opportunity for buying things cheap is closing. And we have, uh, I think, an overrepresentation of stocks, uh, oil field services stocks, both mid cap, large cap, uh, mid cap, and uh, small cap Canadian oil field services onshore uh, are a tremendous niche in my view, tremendously undervalued and great, uh, you know, great opportunity over the next couple of years. Again, here is another chart showing the uh, outperformance of value uh, and growth, the underperformance of growth relative to value. Uh, it's only just getting started. You'll note if you go back to uh, the tech bubble back here, you will note you're seeing something similar to what you're seeing now. Uh, and what you see is what I wanted to point out is during the last time this happened, growth underperformed value for almost 10 years. And so uh, I made a tremendous amount of money during that time. You know, a lot of the tech stocks crashed. If you were around then, if you were a young guy, you maybe were only a a little kid then you don't understand what happened it's something similar to what you're seeing now um the implosion of tech same discussions are happening nothing there's nothing new under the sun guys um so we had outperformance by growth for 10 years now values coming back and value around you know commodities and resources that's a lot of the value uh and value outperformed while people were getting creamed and 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 you had companies go look at the charts from uh, zero, zero to zero one to, you know, 2010 to the, where it bottomed there, 2000, you know, eight, nine. Um, the stocks didn't do anything. The businesses still performed, but they had been so overvalued at that top that it took years, years of sideways, uh, just stocks going sideways or slightly, you know, going down over time for the earnings to catch up and to make the sector, um, you know, attractive for capital again, because there was outperformance in, in the value stocks. And so, you know, I'm shocked. I'm pleasantly shocked, but, you know, this shouldn't be a surprise for us that have been around. And if you're following what we've been talking about in the actionable intelligence alert newsletter, I mean, we're positive for the year. I mean, we have outperformed the S&P by like, we're up triple digits and the S&P is like, you know, I mean, over the last th two or three years is like in single digits are at a loss now. And we consistently uh, outperforming it. Now we do have periods and quarters where we're down 20%, 30%, but we're still outperforming the S&P. And I, can, I, I think that's going to continue uh, because these cycles go in long uh, that we still have people, I still listen to Twitter spaces where people are still like talking about how there's a bottom, um, when's the bottom coming, blah, blah, blah. And like I said, a lot of these companies are going to go away. You know, a lot of these uh, companies that came out during this time of um, 
historic lows in interest rates, which enabled everybody with a dumb idea to get funding. And then, you know, this thing's now reversed. Now at, at you know, at 5% interest rates, that doesn't work anymore, right? Uh, you're going to get scrutinized. Your business is going to get scrutinized. And you're seeing the same thing like in real estate. So all of these bubblicious markets we were talking about are reversing now. But, you know, things that you need to survive, that doesn't end because interest rates go up. And if we've had tremendous underinvestment, you know, as I've said before, if you don't grow it, you have to mine it. And we haven't made those investments because that wasn't sexy. That wasn't uh, cool. That wasn't, uh, you know, where anybody wanted to work. You know, uh, the amount of geologists and petroleum geologists is graduates is like at an all-time low because who wants to go into that, into dying industries? So these are all, you know, they were indications of the bottom. And these things don't take two quarters or a year or even two or three years to turn around. They take a decade. And so that's what we're seeing in my view. So I like pointing these things out. We talked about it like last week a little bit um, with that Twitter thread I put up by that uh, guy that's kind of blowing up on Twitter. Talking about diesel and stuff. But uh, this is uh, like a front end loader you use at a mine. You see the little, I didn't put the whole picture, but you can see the top of the guy's head there, his torso, I think. I mean, it only comes up to like the middle of the wheel of the uh, of this uh, front end loader. But anyways, this is a CAT 99.4A. It burns a thousand liters of, of fuel, well, fuel diesel, thousand liters of diesel in 12 hours. And it, it can move 250 tons of dirt, you know, if an ore or whatever to load into the loaders or whatever. That's 250 tons of dirt to extract materials to produce one Tesla battery. So a thousand liters of fuel just for this front end loader. That doesn't count the haul truck, doesn't count the blasting equipment, the removal of the overburden to get to the ore bodies, all these things that this guy, BF Mitchell or whatever his name is, I can't remember. I put it on the last week on the, uh, he's kind of blown up on Twitter. But I like talking about this. And then, and, and, and you know, this is not going to work. I mean, Mark Mills has talked about this. Several other people have talked about this. It's just a math problem. It, and the burden isn't on me or these other people. They've done the work. The burden's on the people that think the energy transition, none of this matters or none of this, or they don't understand what's going on in the background. And so that's why I, you know, again, why I've coined the term heads we win, tails we win more. If you want to electrify everything and have everybody drive an electric vehicle, this is what you need. And you're not investing in, and we have a diesel shortage. So, you know, hey, have at it. Heads, I win. You need diesel. You need oil. You're crimping on the reinvestment. I win. You want to produce everything electric, electrified and batteries and everything, but you don't have the necessary resources for that either. So those prices, you know, lithium prices are at near an all-time high, I believe, you know. Tails, I win more. It doesn't matter, okay, because you don't have the rational energy policy. You haven't thought, people haven't thought this through. People just think things are cool or it sounds good. And, and again, as I've said before, you go stand in front and talk to the hoi polloi, the mob, bubis americanus, and, you know, coming out of Walmart or grocery store with your clipboard, 
And, you know, are you for clean energy? It's like how you structure the questions. Of course they are. Everybody is. Who doesn't want clean energy? Who doesn't want a clean environment? But how are you defining these words? How are you defining, you know, what the cost is? Because then if you say, okay, well, in order to have clean energy, which you said you just wanted, uh, your energy costs, let's just use an example in your 2,800 square foot house with a pool in suburban Houston, um, has to go from $250 a month to $750 a month or $500. They're not interested in that because they don't feel the effects <clears throat> that you talk about climate change and people are like, well, everybody keeps talking about this disaster, but I don't see, you know, I don't feel it. I don't, it's not impacting me directly. And so they're not, they, the, their human mind with all the other things they have to worry about in real life that are actually happening that are affecting them these uh, uh, obscure, uh, you know, out in the future problems are not high on the list. It's just human nature. And so heads you win, tails you win more. We'll see how it goes. Until we have, like I said, a sit down, well thought out energy policy, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. It's working. Heads we win, tails you win more. I guess I could sit down. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of lazy. That's why, like, when I see these things, I mean, I guess I could sit down and find out all the different types of mining equipment, how much fuel they burn. You know, it's interesting. I, I retweeted this tweet. And of course you get, you know, the true believer or the wag comes on and he puts uh, a reply showing a, um, an excavator. If you know what an excavator is, it has that, you know, it's hydraulic bigger with a bucket on the front. And he shows that, you know, a prototype that uh, Caterpillar was showcasing in Germany, but it was a small excavator. It's not on the size that you would need to move ore, okay? Uh, and so, and of course, it was a prototype. It's not in, it's not in actual manufacturing. You know, they showed another, uh, you know, so that's what you get from people. It's like, okay, bro, yes, you can make a battery-operated excavator. How long does it operate? When I'm out on the job site, how do I recharge it? What's, how long can it run for? Because if I'm on a job site doing work, I'm working as long as there's light, dawn to dusk, okay? If I'm trenching or if I'm making an excavation or whatever I'm doing, and I'm typically, or if I'm putting in a pipeline, I'm going across cow pastures, I'm, this thing's moving, okay? This whole train of equipment is moving down the line. I'm just using an example. How, how, do, you, how do you do that with a battery-charged excavators and crane and pipe movers and bobcats and front-end loaders? It doesn't make any sense. And so if you're going to, if that's your answer, okay, well, until cat comes up with a uh, or front end loader of this size that can work, you know, 24, 24, seven, 365, unless it breaks down or it's in maintenance on batteries or electric, then I'm not interested in talking to you. It's that's just not a good response, but that's what you get. And uh, some people just aren't going to give up because they don't know, they don't know enough about it. And so they're they're, you know, I used to bag on people. I'm trying to get away from that, you know, uh, because it's, you know, it's too easy. It's like dunking on, you know, playing basketball with like elementary school kids. Why would you do that? You know, and then, you know, getting in their face because you swatted the ball away when the kid took a shot and it'd be kind of bizarre, but you know, these people, it, I don't have to do it. I'm here to make money and it's obvious what's going to happen. And I don't need to convince anyone anymore. That's, I'm not a policymaker, but this is interesting. And until you can show me how you're going to electrify this, uh, 
yeah, I'm not interested in talking to you. Heads, we win. Tails, we win more. Another article in Bloomberg. Uh, a year ago, world leaders agreed to phase down coal. Since then, consumption has set records. And so, you know, if you've been invested in thermal coal producers, you've done tremendously well. I don't see this changing anytime soon. As a matter of fact, you know, they're temporarily in Europe, you know, restarting coal plants because of the situation that they're in. So uh, this was another article I thought was interesting. Um, no credible pathway to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So leaders from across the European Union are gearing up for the COP27 conference, the UN climate change conference that aims to put the brakes on climate change and limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, a theoretical aspiration that has become increasingly detached from the reality on the ground. Thank you. I've been saying that for a long time, and uh, now it's starting to become mainstream. There is, quote, no credible pathway to 1.5 degrees Celsius in place, unquote, a UN environmental report concluded last month. Faced with the prospect of widespread blackouts and rationing, countries have made security of supply their top priority, even if it comes with a high economic and environmental price tag. There you have it, folks. We've talked about this. People are not going to accept a lower standard of living and high cost energy for some obscure something that may happen in the future that doesn't directly affect them. Sitting in the cold with no job directly affects you. And, uh, you know, and who's to say, you know, I reject this, uh, these models. Uh, I'm not even going to get into that discussion anymore. But why is a, why is who, because the UN said or, or a bunch of, captured scientists and you know entrenched interest because they have a financial or, or, or political interest in controlling people say that 1.5 degrees celsius is a catastrophe who's who says the world's been warmer and colder yes I, I climate change happens i have no doubt about it i've seen it you can go back and look at the historical record the earth used to be covered in ice okay and the earth used to be warmer than this it goes in cycles how you can explain other warming periods when there was no uh, man-made CO2 emissions is beyond me. But again, this is a scam. And, when it, and this is what I always thought would happen. As we crimped down on the energy supply uh, and costs went up and people's lives were affected detrimentally, they were going to buck, buck, this, buck off this uh, deal. And so this is what the UN Environmental Report concluded quote, no credible pathway, because people don't want to be poor. Once you are have a certain standard of living and the comforts that are provided by these fuels, um, you're not going to be like, the average person doesn't care. So they have to do it uh, another way. And so it's becoming untenable. You know, when it wasn't affecting anyone, no one cared. Now it's affecting people, they care. This is what I've maintained all along. Uh, here's a good uh, paper. I'll put a link to this. It's a scientist uh, wrote a paper. I think it's pretty good. Uh, I was perusing it, just the abstract, but I, I'll put a link to it. I think what he says here is, is uh, I forget the guy's name, but uh, reaching net zero greenhouse gases by 2050 globally is impossible given the scale of the transformation of the energy systems and societies that will be required. Again, we've, we, this is what we've been saying. 
this reality needs to be accepted and in general more focus needs to be put on adapting to any future climate change by implementing no regrets policies to make societies more resilient to any perceived effects of future climate change exactly exactly this is what i've been saying this is what i advocate for in any case the world will have no choice but to learn to adapt to any future changes caused by climate change since it will be impossible to eliminate greenhouse gases globally for a long time. There you have it. I'll put a link to the paper. You can peruse it for your own reading pleasure. So I put the title of the slide, Emergence of the Multipolar World. You know, this is one of the other long-term thesis that I have or idea. Um, again, most people listening to this won't bother to do it, but you can go on the Kremlin website and read Vladimir Putin's speeches that he's given recently referring to the multipolar world, the rejection of the unipolar world led by the United States and the Atlanticists, i.e. the uh, UK and their vassal states in Europe, um, and the rejection of that. And I'm not going to, I'm thinking about making a video about the whole thing separate from these videos just to see uh because then people can self-select if they want to listen to it or not, because I know it's gets people's hackles up. Um, people have really strong emotions about this. But regardless, um, this was an editorial written by uh, the dim bulb Olaf Scholz, uh, the current you know, leader chancellor of Germany. This is what he said. And these are a couple quotes from the article. I'll put a link to it. There's some canards in there, obviously, but he did say some things I thought were interesting. It is here that new centers of power are emerging in a multipolar world, and we aim to establish and expand partnerships with all of them. Hmm. Interesting, because if you listen to a lot of the people in the West, they reject the notion of this multipolar world. Thus, in recent months, we have carried out in-depth coordination at the international level with close partners such as Japan and Korea, India and Indonesia, and countries in Africa and Latin America, too. At the end of next week, I will travel to Southeast Asia and the G20 summit. And while I'm visiting China, Germany's federal president will be in Japan and Korea. Of all the countries in the world, Germany, which had such a painful experience of division during the Cold War, has no interest in seeing new blocks emerge in the world. The new United States national security strategy also rightly emphasizes the goal of preventing a new confrontation between opposed blocks. But that's exactly what they're getting. The, let me rephrase the last, in my view, the last sentence. This is Olaf Scholz. This is not John Paulamy. This is a stooge. This is a vassal of the United States. Okay. It's a good possibility that either the UK or the US or both of them, along with some other players, conspired to basically permanently take out or try to take out the pipeline that was supplying gas from Russia to Germany. Okay. And the way I, reason I say that is because that's why I call them a vassal state. They just sit there and take it. I mean, this, this, I hate to say this, there's a lot of people from Germany that listen to this, do not take this personally, but a large portion of your population is cucked out fully for the empire, okay? Now, most countries in Europe have cucked, okay? They've bent over and 
grab both butt cheeks. And I hate to be that crude, but that's what it is. So listen to what Mr. Schultz says here. Again, let me reemphasize it. His words and then my interpretation. The new United States national security strategy. Who gives a crap about their strategy? What's the German strategy? The new United States national security strategy also rightly, again, pulled the butt cheeks apart, rightly, he's agreeing with it, emphasizes the goal of preventing a new confrontation between opposed blocs. Do you get what all this is about now? Okay, maintaining the United States, the Atlanticist hegemon, okay? Trying to stop the McKinton, it's all about, you know, it goes back to the McKinton uh, idea, right? The Eurasian island, the block, or, or what Mr. Putin and, Mr. and Xi Jinping and all these other people have been talking about, this economic block, okay, that stretches from Lisbon, Portugal to Vladivostok, okay? The Eurasian island, the combination, I mean, what, 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 would, what is so scary for the United States is the fact that you have an industrial power, which is now being basically eviscerated because of uh, the energy issues, okay? I wasn't going to get into this. I was going to make this a separate video, but I'm just going to finish this thought and then get off it. What's scaring the crap out of the U.S. as its hegemon, its empire is collapsing around it, is... They, they're over on the other side of the ocean, of the Atlantic Ocean, okay? And the UK is an island, okay? It's kind of has one foot in each thing. They, they're part of that Atlanticist, you know, the, the empire, you know, British empire, the banking interests that uh, came out of that, that Atlanticist uh, view. And Europe now has, you know, instead of finding its own, they're so scared because of the two world wars they had that they've cucked out, okay? And so if you're a nationalist or somebody that cares about Germany, if you're a German, you know, what an opportunity you have still, if you can break free of this United States national security strategy, you should be working with Russia to take in the cheap raw materials, that energy and that industrial powerhouse that is Germany and the products and the relationships they could have with that entire Eurasian bloc. I mean, with the Belt and Road uh, initiative building transportation links from China through Central Asia to Europe and how that would open up everything. And why the United States doesn't like that is because it, it won't be involved in it. It's going to be stuck on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. This is what all this is about. And so Mr. Schultz is telling you in coded language, or maybe, you know, maybe it's just my own biases, what's really going on here. And so they're trying to, you know, I, I guess, you know, the deindustrialization of Germany is underway. Are you telling me that after Nord Stream was blown up, if Russia did it, they didn't, they did it in other people's waters, national control of their waters, Swedes and Danes or whoever's investigating this, it would have been on the front page news. Here's all the proof. Here's pictures. Here's evidence that the Russians did it. You don't hear that. It's all national security. It's been swept under the rug because we know. So that that circumstantially, I mean, I cannot say definitively, circumstantially, this was an opportunity. I mean, Mr. Biden is the one that said it, that under no circumstances will we allow this to go forward. And so, you know, what a tremendous opportunity has been lost. OK, not only for Germany, but the entire entirety of Europe. And eventually this is going to you know, be, I think, a problem. But this is. This is where it is. You're moving to this multipolar world, whether the United States likes it, 
And now Germany, you know, when Mr. Schultz, I heard in an article, I read in an article, when he was going to China, he was, they were going to take business leaders with them. There were so many people signed up, they didn't have enough room on the plane. So this is what's happening. This is one of my, the deglobalization, the deindustrialization of Europe, this trying to stop this Eurasian, you know, island economic, uh, you know, and political. You know, when you become tied economically, you're politically become more uh, tied together. And so what would be the purpose of NATO? What would be the purpose? We don't, you know, we wouldn't consider Russia an enemy, you know, what I find interesting about this whole discussion about Russia, we have to stop them. We have to protect this democracy in Ukraine, because if we don't, they'll roll all the way up. And then, they'll, you know, Lithuania and Estonia will be next. And then Poland will be threatened and then Slovakia. And then eventually, you know, they could threaten all of Europe. But in the meantime, when I read the battle reports every day from the ISW, which is the Kagan outfit, and some of these other pro-empire uh, reports, the Russian military is full of drunkard Mongols, uh, riffraff. The equipment sucks. Uh, they can't uh, walk straight and chew gum, but yet they're going to take over the whole world. You can't. It's again, it's the same talking out of both sides of your mouth, like on energy policy. So I want to stop there because I'm, I'm going to make a separate video for this because this just gets people riled up. But this is Mr. Schultz. This is not John Paul me saying this. And so I would suggest you read it because uh, this is what is happening. The, like I've said before, the amount of political, economic, and social change that's going to happen in the next decade is going to shock the world and shock people. And if you are not paying attention, and if you have wedded yourself to the old playbook like our octogenarian leadership in Congress and president have, then you are going to be shining my shoes. It's that simple. So here, again, is another thing. I don't want to keep belaboring this, but this is pretty close estimation. This was on Twitter. Um, I put the uh, thing up here. I think this is what Cato used to say in the Roman Senate uh, after the Punic Wars. Um, I think he held up a, uh, he used to say at the end of every one of his speeches, he would finish by saying something. I don't know if it was his exact quote, but he would say Carthage must be destroyed. This was uh, a, a an enemy in North African empire that uh, had Rome fought several couple wars with. Um, and uh, they, they, they felt was a rival that had to be, you know, and so this is what he used to say. And so it's kind of the reason I put this up here is because all of this animus towards, you know, Russia, and it must be destroyed, it must be, it must be, we will not be satisfied until, you know, the government in Russia is changed. Changed to what? Do you think that if you bring down the government in Russia, that you're going to get some liberal Jeffersonian liberal that's going to be like Olaf Schultz and bend over and spread his butt cheeks so that all these business interests and banking interests from the West can go in there and exploit the $75 trillion in resources. Do you think that might have something to do with all the animus towards Russia? Look at some of the other countries on this list, Iran, 27.3 trillion, Venezuela, Iraq. Uh, are you starting to get it? Okay. We live on a finite world with finite resources. Control of resources and economics, um, you know, is an imperative for some of these people. And uh, I'm not, you know, I'm just pointing this out. This is a fact. Uh, the optimum situation for the West and for the empire, for the hegemon, is to see the collapse of the current Russian political structure, 
the diffusion of the Russian Federation into multiple smaller countries, um, probably tied around different ethnic, you know, you'd have a, you know, European Russia, you'd have, you know, the Ural region, Siberia, all these smaller, you know, eight to 10 or 12 different states, statelets, if you will, who would be in constant conflict. And then that would open up the opportunity for the Westing, Western banking and business interests to come in and exploit. This is what the West does. Uh, so just pointing this out. And so, you know, this is why you can take, you know, Carthage out and put, you know, the Western political class, Russia must be destroyed. Well, I don't think they want to be destroyed. So that creates a problem. So here is another uh, vignette or a uh, consequence of the ridiculous energy policy and the self-imposed energy embargo in Europe. Uh, France's glass manufacturer, Duralex, suspends operation for five months due to surging electricity bills. Quote, our bill for gas and electricity has gone from three to 13 million euros per year, or 46% of our turnover, the CEO of Duralex said. So. I don't know if they'll reopen. I don't know what their plans are. Uh, I don't know the glass that they made, who will step into that breach, possibly China, right? I mean, the deindustrialization of the US was pretty successful. We moved every, all of our manufacturing overseas or a lot, a good portion of it. And I think that's you know partially part of the goal of the um, you know leadership class in Europe. And so maybe this never even comes back. Maybe they move their operations to Mexico or to Southeast Asia and then import. And so the people that were working uh, at these manufacturing facilities, you know, I guess they should learn to code. And so this is, you know, this is, and, I, and like I've said before, I don't think that everybody in the leadership class in Europe thinks this is a bad thing. Deindustrializing Europe because of these 2050 goals around carbon, I mean, to them, that's more important. And so in a reminder that the, uh, from the International Energy Agency that the EU gas issue is not solved. I've talked about this before. You know, the prices are plunging because you're having um, unseasonably warm weather and storage is filled at the expense of many other countries like Pakistan that couldn't get LNG cargoes because they were outbid. But the IEA is sounding the alarm bell, quote unquote, over gas supplies next year warning European leaders not to become complacent following the recent fall in prices and urging them to take immediate action to ensure supplies for next winter. Fadi Birol, head of the IEA, said on Thursday that while Europe had successfully filled storage sites to 95%, again, that doesn't get you through the winter. You still need constant flow of natural gas. Anyways, ahead of the winter months, the agency forecasts a significant shortfall next year with Russian supplies expected to remain largely cut off. Yeah, until they, if they, you know, I don't even know if you could repair the relationship at this point, but unless you had a complete change in the political class in Europe, which it is slowly changing, but it's still, it's still controlled opposition, right? Um, it's still going to be that way. Uh, you're not going to change a lot of this by voting, in my opinion, unless you have a complete collapse, which forces almost like a revolution. Because you do not get it, you can't even get near the levers of power, even as an opposition party, without being controlled opposition. This is why they go after people like, you know, and, and I know I'm going to get hear it in the comments from certain people. 
this was the main thing, the populism that Trump represented. It wasn't Trump himself. It was the populist movement, okay, which would throw out all of these people, okay? And that's why we cannot allow anybody like that to get close to the power level, levers of power again. Impeach twice? For what? Okay? Constant demonization in the media. Is the guy a buffoon? Does he say off-the-wall things? Yeah. But he represented a a zeitgeist i mean the guy still gives still still has probably 40 percent support in the country at least okay and a majority of the republican party and yet is the republican party a reflective of that absolutely not because they're captured opposition they're there mitch mcconnell kevin mccarthy if you do have a red wave what are they going to do they're going to have a little bit of you know things for the media there some little red meat things about fauci and things like that nothing's going to change are they going to go in and defund the FBI and CIA? Absolutely not. That's what they should do. They control the purse strings. The president can't do anything. Are they going to do it? Absolutely not. They're scared to do it. And that's not what they're there for. They're there to get money and power. You know, they serve their constituencies, which are the lobbyists and the interests that, uh, you know, of the, of the, of the uh, you know, lobby, lobbying class. This is interesting. Central bank gold demand. Uh, central banks are buying gold at the fastest pace in 55 years. Hmm. I wonder why. I'm not going to speculate as to why. I just think it's interesting to report this. I'll put a link to the Zero Hedge article. I would note, though, I was listening to the uh, Crescat Capital Tavi Costa outfit. He does like these weekly. He has a YouTube channel. Or Crescat Capital does. And I think his partner's name's Kevin White, I believe. Anyways. They have this weekly um, like YouTube show. It's like an hour long, but they go over a lot of charts and stuff and go over things. And what I found interesting was they showed like the dividend yield for like Newmont Mining, which is one of the largest gold miners in the world. It's like over 5% going on 6%. They showed the free cash flow yield of like Barrick. It's at like all-time highs. And so what I'm trying to say to you is at some point, gold is going to have shine again i believe it's going to have another run i don't think it's going to do anything in the current environment where the dollar is making you know the dollar strength we're seeing it's just and with interest rates going up but at some point uh the federal reserve will be forced to change lanes change direction pause and then begin cutting rates because you know that's just how things are they just the debts are too big we've talked about this before and i think gold then will get a uh you know, we'll see new life. Let's put it that way. Are we close to that? I have no idea. That that's the thing. I think once the the pause comes, we're moving towards that. Uh, you know, the economic conditions are rapidly deteriorating in the United States, and at some point, something's going to break, and then they're going to do what they always do. And I think commodities, including gold, are going to rip higher. They're going to rip people's faces off. And so that's where we're at. I've I've compiling a list. I've actually dabbled a little bit in some junior exploration companies. Uh, they're selling at really tremendous lows. Uh, these are trading sardines. Let's just be honest. These are not investments. They're burning matches. Um, they exist. Uh, they have no sales, no earnings. But uh, you can make tremendous money on these things under the right conditions. And I believe things are setting up for those conditions over the next six months to a year. So I'm, I've been nibbling. I have a list. I haven't really put it into the newsletter. I'm thinking about doing it in the next couple months. 
uh, to be for a highly speculative uh, situation. And you, and you want to buy a basket of these things, right? You want to take like 10 or 20 grand and put two grand into like 10 names, right? And most of them probably won't do anything. A couple of them might go up several thousand percent. That's what you want to do. Uh, because like I said, these things just gobble up capital. They have no sales and earnings. And what you're hoping for is a uh, just general run in the gold price, gold and silver prices, and then it pulls these things along with them. These things usually go up three to five times what the uh, metal price does. So uh, right now you're swimming upstream against the dollar and against interest rates. Uh, you don't want to be buying gold and silvers, uh, but with the producers even, you know, with their costs, they've been in the past, the downfall of a lot of the mining companies was they would get flush with cash. Then they would go out and do all these crazy things like make these crazy acquisitions at the, you know, at the uh, cycle high, dumb, dumb business decisions. Instead, what they've done this time, for the most part, they have a tremendous amount of discipline and, and they're, they're, you know, advocating for shareholder returns. And so that's why you're seeing these high dividend yields. You're seeing in some cases share buybacks. And I think that, uh, you know, you can make, you know, one of the companies I like, I've talked about many times, I still have a small holding of it, uh, Caledonia Mining in Zimbabwe. I mean, they have one of the best mining mines in the world, um, the blanket mine. It's tremendously profitable. And you have a management that's been able to, you know, make it through the Mugabe days and navigate through all of the nonsense in Zimbabwe with the currency and stuff like that and consistently pays out like a 6% dividend and has been raising it over time becoming more efficient using internally gener generated cash flow to increase the efficiency and increase the resource at the mine and now has made additional, um, you know, just required another potential mining opportunity. So that's the kind of stuff you need to look for in this industry. Uh, it doesn't really do anything. You just clip your coupons while you wait, but in a gold run, companies like that will do well. And uh, it's, you know, it's, you're buying shares in the business. Now, the, 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 the junior resource explorers and things like that, those are trading sardines. You're hoping that you get a run in the metal price, and then these things go you know, three, five, ten times. So it's, it's totally different. But I think there's an opportunity starting to build there in this, in this market. I, 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 the timing, uh, I don't have it nailed down yet, but probably looking to go more heavily in maybe the first quarter of next year. And so this is what we're starting to see, right? Layoffs announced in the last day. Uh, I just saw those tweets, uh, you know, Lyft, 13%, Open Door, 18%, Stripe, 14%, Chime, 12%, Twitter, 50%, Morgan Stanley, percent unknown, Wells Fargo, uh, laying off a lot of the mortgage people. You know, it's the end of cheap money. The, a lot of these companies didn't make any sense. I mean, uh, Uber, I like using their services, but the company loses money. That won't continue forever. Eventually, you run out of money and the thing goes out of business, or you have to raise prices uh, sufficient to make money. And so when you have 0% interest rates or very low interest rates, and you have a speculation, a speculative environment where people just throw cash and their common sense goes out the window and they can make the case because the cheap money enables it for why these things can work, even though they're you know total addressable market. $10 billion, you know, or total addressable market, you know, $1 trillion. And then because there's so much liquidity, so much money floating around, 
every dumb idea gets financed. I mean, I don't want to talk bad about people because I'm sure there's people that use it, these meal delivery services. Why are, you know, why am I going to have like, I even see like, I've never used one of them, but why would I order something uh, and then somebody brings it to my house since it's been cooked, it could be like a half hour, an hour. It's soggy and I'm paying like, you know, tremendous amount of money for this. Why? Because I'm quite frankly, too lazy to go to the restaurant and sit down and eat. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, some people probably get a benefit from this. They like it. I don't know. I can't see myself doing it uh, again, maybe because I'm older and I just don't do that, but none of these things would work uh, if, uh, if there wasn't like, unlimited capital to keep funding these ideas and that's gone away now with rates going up liquidity shrinking uh dumb ideas are going away and so this is what happens right uh we have to cut back because you know twitter's losing four million month uh what 40 million a month or something or four million a, a day or something something crazy number and so you see those you know i got in trouble for this on twitter because you see these dumb you know a day in the life of a new of a Twitter project manager or whatever product manager. Oh, I got up at seven, then I uh, did my yoga and then I had this and then I went and got my coffee at Starbucks. And then I went to the thing, we had breakfast at the, at the office and I went up on the rooftop and did a little bit of work and got some sun. Then I went to the private nap room. Then they had lunch out there, this gourmet meal. I mean, this stuff all costs money. Who's working? Does anybody work there? Well, evidently not because they just got rid of 50% of the employees and Twitter's still running. So <laughs> I mean, we'll have to see. But, uh, you know, I think there's a, my experience working in large companies, I hate to say this, is that it's Pareto's law again. I mean, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. You can get rid of a lot of people and you wouldn't even notice it for the most part. And I think, you know, cheap money enabled a lot of dumb ideas to get traction. And now we're seeing that reverse. And so a result of that is, is Wells Fargo mortgage staff brace for layoffs as U.S. loan volume collapses. Let's look at this highlighted section here. The bank had about 18,000 loans in its retail origination pipeline in the early weeks of the fourth quarter, according to people with knowledge of the company's figures. That is down as much as 90% from a year earlier. 90% mortgage originations at Wells Fargo down 90%. No one's buying houses because rates are too high and prices have not come down to compensate. Man, I am over here rubbing my hands together. You know, I just read a book about four or five months ago. My new hero for investing is a woman called Hetty Green. I mean, she was a really weird person, but she was like in the late 1800s, early 1900s. She was known as the Witch of Wall Street. She kind of had an unfair reputation. Um, but she was a very wealthy woman. She came from a New England whaling family that had accumulated some wealth from whaling uh, operations. They had been in uh, Connecticut or something like that. I can't remember. Anyways, she didn't really have any brothers. Wait, if you read the book, how she basically came in control of the family wealth and then how she you know, expanded it over time, over several, many decades of her life. Now, she was kind of weird she'd spend any money i mean she was she took the millionaire next door thing to the ultimate she would live like only had like one set of clothes would just eat cheap food i mean i don't advocate all that but just what she would do i mean she had an office set up in chemical bank you, 
people would walk in there and see her and she would just go to the office every day and clip her bond coupons but she had real estate holdings all over the united states like um and what she would do is just wait for things to become cheap or she was like kind of like warren buffett people would get themselves in trouble financially and then they would come to her for a bailout and then she would be able to extract these you know very uh lucrative and beneficial to her terms and uh you know she was really able to uh expand her uh family's wealth now she i think she had a daughter she didn't treat her daughter very well she made her like wear old clothes and stuff too it's it's kind of a sad story it's kind of a an interesting story if you interested in building wealth and i i like the historical things about these famous people or these people that you know were financiers and stuff and you remember she did this in a time when women really didn't weren't involved in these things uh, but if you read you know she she did have and she was very very uh vindictive person i mean she really kind of pushed out her other relatives she really got control of everything now she, i think she died pretty lonely and stuff at the end but getting back to the story and why this is exciting for me is because this is going to create opportunities folks i mean i this is like my little hobby sometimes i do on sunday afternoons for like an hour or two if i see like drive around some of these neighborhoods where i live here in suburban houston just looking at some of the open houses and looking at the traffic and stuff that goes in or perusing zillow and starting to see all the price uh cuts now because i think uh if this continues uh prices are going to have to come down right people are going to you know people keep saying well nobody's going to sell blah 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 well things happen there's things that happen in life right divorce death and um you know things like that people move uh all kinds of things happen people get sick uh, they get divorced people die and so selling the house uh there's constant turnover right and i think that you know i listened to a podcast last this last week is this whole airbnb thing where everybody thought they were going to make free money people buying these airbnbs that's kind of collapsing now it was kind of interesting listening to that about how fast that's collapsed and how stupid that was again uh enabled by you know very low interest rates i mean it's no secret i was able to lock in a va loan for my house you know under three percent or right around three percent so basically with inflation at you know eight percent you know i'm basically <laughs> negative rates right so uh um but i think this is interesting because it's gonna why i bring up hetty green is because that's what you need to be thinking about um i'm not trying to be a real estate empire uh, empire builder but if i can buy a really nice house in a nice neighborhood for cheap you know things bottom out and then recover at some point at least that's what you hope for but uh you know we'll see I, I, what i think is interesting is just watching these things and then the opportunities that, that open up right um and and how to take advantage of these things and the thing I guess I want to emphasize when I'm talking about, you know, Green or, or Buffett or Munger, you have to have some capital because if you have capital at these at these inflection points or after these financial uh, uh, discombobulations, I like using that word for some reason, but you you have opportunity. Your opportunity set explodes because if you have money at the bottom then not only can you get good prices and remember pay what you pay for an asset, whether it's a stock piece of real estate, whatever, a bottle of, you know, vintage wine, whatever it is that determines what your profit's going to be, right. Or your returns, because if you buy at the lows, then, you know, your, your, your ability to make money goes up. And I, 
you know, if you get a chance, read that book. Cause it's kind of interesting uh, how she, I mean, she kind of like built up her wealth to almost to the point where she was one of the wealthiest people in the United States at that time. So, and that was, that was the whole thing, you know, example after example of stepping in or people coming to her when they were uh, in dire straits financially and she was able to set the terms. And that's what I think people are going to be able to do like in real estate and a lot of other things, you know, at some point, uh, I think the situation in Europe will change right now. I think Europe is more uninvestable than China, but at some point things are going to change or have the possibility of changing. And then we would change our view and there will be tremendous values. Uh, the same thing will happen in a lot of these growth stocks. We'll weed out, you know, pets.com doesn't exist anymore from the first internet bubble. Right. And so a lot of these other companies I just highlighted before, they're going to go away and then, Changes will be made, managements will change, restructurings will happen, and then we'll be able to look at the cash flows and whether or not we have a real legitimate business, and then it will be time to buy those companies because you can make a tremendous amount of money uh, at these inflection points. I mean, oil will not go up forever. Value will not always outperform growth. So we have to be open-minded and open for these opportunities. So that's the point I'm trying to make here. So it's kind of a long-winded thing, but... Uh, this is uh, going to create opportunity in real estate. Again, uh, I put up here another reason the average person has no wealth. Um, I like following this car dealership guy. He talks about used cars a lot on Twitter. I thought this was an interesting tweet. I know this is getting a little bit long, but there's so many interesting, fascinating uh, pieces of information this week. Um fascinating chart showing percent of residents paying over $1,000 a month for their cars. Who in the heck has a thousand dollar a month car payment or more? That's crazy. That's nuts. Fun fact, more than one in five shoppers in Texas and Wyoming committed to a monthly payment over a thousand dollars a month in Q3 driven by purchases of large trucks. You know, I want to buy one of these new Ford Broncos with the Sasquatch package or that uh, Everglades package is kind of cool, but I'm not paying over MSRP and I'm not paying what they want for them. I watch the prices and this recession is going to allow me to get the vehicle I want uh, and, and stuff like that. I believe at a bargain, you just have to wait because I mean, as the economy continues to, you know, unemployment will, you know, I think at some point we're going to have an issue and, you know, the, the if the federal reserve is going to continue trying to contract the economy, then we're going to have a recession. I and mean, it's pretty much guaranteed if we're not already in a recession, we're probably in a manufacturing recession. People are going to get laid off. And then, you know, but guys, if you have, you know, this is not, read the millionaire next door. Okay. I'm not saying you have to live a life like Hetty Green, where you only have one change of clothes and eat oatmeal three, three times a day, like she did and live in a, in squalor in a one bedroom apartment in a tenement. I'm not saying that, What I'm saying is, you know, unless you're working in the oil field or something, why do you need the F-350 King Ranch version that costs $90,000 to take your kids to soccer practice and go to HEB, which is a grocery store here in Texas, big chain. You, what are you doing? And then you put all this lift kit and tires, just get yourself a Toyota Corolla. The thing will run for 250,000 miles by the thing used. It kind of is like that. Uh, there's a video. I'll put a link to it. Um, there was that movie, The Gambler, with uh, John Goodman and uh, Marky Mark Wahlberg. And I'll put the YouTube clip. It's kind of some swear words. But, you know, it's like a two-minute clip where John Goodman says, look, any idiot 
that gets any kind of wealth, like a million or $2 million knows what to do. Buy yourself a, I'm not going to use a swear word to use, but like crap box Toyota, okay, or Japanese, he calls it a Japanese crap box. Get yourself a, you know, a, a, a decent house with a 30-year roof and put the rest into, you know, safe investments. Any idiot knows that. But how are you going to do that? How are you going to accumulate any wealth? How are you going to, you know, if you have a thousand dollar a month, over a thousand dollar a month car payment, that's crazy. Buy yourself a, a, a used Toyota or a Hyundai or a Kia. These, these people make good cars now and they last and put the thousand dollar a month into a rental property guys or something. I mean, this is nuts, but Hey, people do what they they're going to do. And I don't want to criticize other people. I, I, this is not how I built my wealth. Um, I went through a phase when I was younger, when I had fast cars, I had car payments. I don't have car payments. I don't like car payments. I pay cash for my cars. I don't buy, you know, very expensive cars. They're transportation. I'd rather put the money into wealth building and to do other things for my family and other things that I care about besides driving around. You know, if I was on a, if I was a pipeliner or something like that, or I had a ranch, well, that's different, but I don't. So what do I need this big, big thing for? So anyway, I just thought this was, inter I thought it was shocking actually, how many people uh, are doing this. So I think this is the last slide. This is worth following. I kind of crossed this guy on Twitter. I'm going to, I started following him. I'm going to do some more research. I really want to stay on this because this is what I thought would happen. And what I'm talking about is the pandemic, you know, with the, I believe a lot of people are being injured by these so-called vaccines. And I think a lot of other people share my view. I think that the zeitgeist is changing now. Yes, there's always going to be a hardcore 25, 30% of the people. They're not going to change their view, whatever, because their ego and their pride won't allow them to look at the facts. That's not just with vaccines. That's anything. Okay. Um, Russia, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, Donald Trump. There's just people that believe what they want to believe. But people that are, this is what I thought would end up happening. I believe that the trial lawyers would not go after the um, the pharmaceutical companies because they're going to be precluded from doing that because of the emergency use authorization. And again, as uh, Robert Kennedy has pointed out, once they get it on the childhood vaccine um, schedule, these MNRA vaccines, then they're going to be completely uh, shielded from liability. I believe that will change over the next several years as the fraud that was taking place. But here's what's starting to happen. The employers that mandated this, they are not without. So one of the things, if you remember, and I'm an expert on this, I used to be a bargaining unit chairman when I was on tools and I was an hourly employee. And we would constantly be arguing and fighting the contract with the company, violations, things like that. And one of our big things was safety and really understanding the OSHA regulations. We didn't, you know, we wanted to protect our workers. It wasn't like to jam the company, but, you know, there's always going to be some guys in middle management or frontline supervision that are trying to just get things done and skirt things, even though they know better. And so you really had to know the regs. And one of the things that kept sticking in my mind when, especially even the company I was working for at the time was talking about possibly mandating things, and I pushed back a little bit on that. And I also uh, saw some other people. I was gearing up to get an attorney and push back. And my deal was, okay, same thing with the mask. It was like, if you say, want me to say, go into a petroleum holding tank or a product chemical tank or something and do some work in there, you have to, as the employer, 
identify the risk. You have to educate me on that risk. You then have to provide the proper PPE, engineering controls, and uh, procedures so that I can enter that vessel, understanding what the hazards are, properly protected and trained to mitigate those hazards and yet get the work done, okay? And so if you, as a condition of, they, the employer has that responsibility. It's one of the first things in the OSHA regulations, if you open it up, um, that says that the employer has the responsibility to provide a safe workplace. Okay, well, that was some of the arguments some of the employers made. They said, well, because this is, you know, pandemic, blah, 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 yada, 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 you know, you have to take this vaccine to protect other workers. Yeah. The problem is, is if you put me into that vessel with like a forced air equipment or something and it's defective, you're responsible if I get hurt. You're responsible legally if I get hurt as the employer because you're not providing the right equipment or procedures or whatever to keep me safe. Even though it's for my safety, you have the responsibility, you have the burden to do that. And so when these mandates were made by these companies, this is what I thought their weakness was. If it ever turned out uh, that these things were not effective, if they did damage people and you mandated it as a condition of employment, then the employer was going to be liable, okay? Uh, or you could make that case, you know, and whether you could get it in a, in a court of law would be a different thing. And so what I always thought would happen is the trial lawyers, which I don't, which I despise for the most part, but in this case, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, you know, if they get a case, you know, here's what this Ben Carlisle says, he's a workman's comp lawyer. I just had my first hearing before a workers' compensation judge on a claim for an employer-mandated vaccine injury. The judge found sufficient evidence to proceed. Trial set for January. You can't sue Pfizer, but you can bring a claim against your employer. And so with 50 different states, with all types of different jurisdictions, um, you know, and all types of views on this, uh, I don't know if this is in a blue state. I don't know if this is in a red state. I don't know if this is in a jurisdiction where a large amount of the people, uh, what they think about these vaccines. But if you get a jury trial, you remember what happened with asbestos, uh, mesothelioma commercials. You've seen them on TV. You've seen the uh, Vioxx commercials for attorneys advertising for people that were killed by Vioxx, which is a Merck drug uh, that killed like 100,000 people. Um, there's example after example. And so what I would suggest paying attention to is if this in fact gets traction, uh, these things, I mean, the trial lawyers are going to swarm to this like flies to, or, you know, flies to honey. I mean, it's just going to be, it's just going to be like a floodgate opening up because that's what these guys are about. Right. And um, so it only takes one, a couple cases here or there, and then you get case law and then this whole thing could open up. And so this has the potential in my view to be the biggest thing that ever happened vis-a-vis -vis, like, you know, um, being damaged by employers, like blowing asbestos and mesothelioma and that kind of stuff out of the water. Um, you know, that deal bankrupted several companies like uh, John, uh, John's Manville. Um, I think WR Grace had to go through a restructuring because of some of these things. So a lot of companies uh, had the deal and they actually had to get the federal government involved to create a fund, to bail out everything because the damages were so large just just around asbestos and this this could be this could be you know 10 times that 100 i don't even know you can't put a number so we'll have to follow this but this is what i this is what i thought the vector for 
for bringing this thing to to light would happen. And, and I think the mindset's changing uh, for a lot of people around this uh, whole deal. And uh, excess deaths are up. I mean, why is that happening? It's not COVID deaths. So why are these excess deaths happening? So I think a lot of information, and then a lot of stuff's going to come out in discovery. And then, you know, you only need, you know, if it's jury trial or a judge sympathetic to workers or labor, I mean, you can, you know, you, you, you get the right jurisdiction with the right, with the right judge. And next thing you know, you know, you, you're going to have a big problem on your hands. And um, I think the insurance industry is in the same boat. They're having, we, we, we've seen um, people uh, talking about uh, the excessive amount of uh, deaths uh, and the payouts that are having to happen. And the actuaries are scratching their head because they can't figure out why this is happening. And so anyways, something to keep an eye on, because I remember even like a year ago, seeing a news item somewhere, or at least an article somewhere, uh, where like one of the bar associations, I think it was Colorado, was already having like uh, discussions among their members, like a symposium, if you will, or part of their training session that they have every year. And this was one of the things they were talking about was how to pursue these vaccine injuries. So I think there's a, this, this could be a, a big game changer. All right, not to stay on that too much. Um, again, guys, uh, thanks for the uh, viewership. Again, we say some provocative things here. I hope we didn't offend you. You know, if you have something to say, say it in the comments. Um, you know, unless you're lying, I don't really bar any of the comments, uh, except for like the porno ads and the stupid stuff for uh, Bitcoin, where the guy says he met this person that made him so much money in Bitcoin, then 25 like bots you know, all endorse that view. That's the kind of stuff that I, that I throw off. Uh, but I've had people call me names and stuff or disagree with me or call my mom names, but I won't go in for lying. If you make an assertion, then you have to back it up. Or if you don't, then you'll be thrown off too. So anything that I say, you know, I don't always get it exactly right. Feel free to correct. I speak extemporously. And so from memory, and uh, I kind of just put these outlines together in my head. Uh, this is editorializing for the most part. So sometimes I get the facts maybe not thought out correctly. I don't do it deliberately. And I do have my biases too, like everyone. Everyone listening to this has biases. And so sometimes those influence uh, my views on things. But happy to discuss, happy to talk about it, because in the end, what we're trying to do is maximize our returns by figuring out the probabilities of future events and then finding out ways to uh, speculate and invest in those uh, outcomes. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.